Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, first, uh, good afternoon and welcome. My name is Bob Kantner. I am a member of the Board of Directors of the World Affairs Council and a member of the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations, and both of us are very glad you're here today. Um, I see lunch is arriving, which makes me feel a little better about standing up and speaking to you. Um, we're very pleased to have Adam Siegel with us here today to speak on a topic that is uh, extraordinarily uh, timely, and I will be introducing him uh, shortly. Uh, I would like to thank uh, the DCFR of the Dallas Committee on Foreign Relations for partnering with the Council to present uh, this program uh, today, which I know you're looking forward to, and I'd like to issue a special thank you to the Dallas Business Club and the Council on Foreign Relations for their support as well. Uh, first, let me thank the uh, assorted councils and committees uh, for having me out here. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be back in uh, Dallas. Um, as uh, Bob mentioned, it's, it's very easy to see in the, in the headlines uh, what motivated uh, me to write this book. Um, I would have added uh, China's supercomputer that passed the U.S., uh, the endless series of stories that seem to come out in the New York Times about uh, Chinese uh, wind turbines and high-speed rail. Um, and I, I also want to point out that these stories are no longer just confined uh, to, the, to the business page and the front page. In fact, uh, about two months ago, they migrated to the sports page. Uh, Y'all might have seen that when the Vikings-Eagle game was canceled because of a huge snowstorm, uh, Governor Ed Rendell complained that not only would the Chinese have played the game, but they would have marched down to the stadium doing advanced calculus problems the whole way. <laughs> Uh, so there's a widespread sense that the, uh, the Chinese, and Asia in particular, are eating our lunch, to use the colloquial, uh, that they are rising uh, in an almost inevitable uh, trend. But this really hasn't meshed uh, with what I've heard on the ground from Chinese and Indian entrepreneurs, policymakers, uh, technology analysts. Uh, and this came home really clearly to me. I was interviewing uh, Jerry Rao, who was founded Emphasis, is one of the first offshoring companies. Uh, and uh, we're doing an interview in, in Bombay, in Mumbai, in, in a hotel there, and maybe after my fifth or sixth question about America's inevitable decline, he basically threw up his hands and said, you Americans have, have lost your minds. Right? You have lost a sense of all the great strengths that you have uh, and failed to notice all of the amazing barriers and weaknesses that we face as we try to build these innovation <coughs> systems. How to think about those strengths and weaknesses came to me uh, on a trip in Beijing. I went out to visit a R&D center of an American telecom company. Uh, it was in Wangjing. Wangjing is totally greenfield. Three years ago or four years ago, it was all, all farmland. Uh, you go out there, you know, you're on your eight lane or 10 lane highway, uh, probably also built a year or two years ago. Of course, you're only traveling about five miles an hour because of all the traffic, but it's still completely brand new. You go out to the building, brand new staff with the most uh, cutting edge advanced equipment. Uh, the place is staffed with uh, young Chinese graduates of Tsinghua, which is known as China's MIT, uh, or Beijing University, which is known as China's Harvard. 
and uh, they just seem to be so uh, energetic and hungry, right? They've worked harder than you've worked in your entire life. Um, and in the interview with the two managers, the story sounds very much like what you would read in Thomas Friedman or Business Week, right? They, they came to China because they, there was no talent in the United States, right? They couldn't find the scientists and engineers. They came to China in part because of Chinese government pressure. Right. The Chinese government has made it very clear to U.S. companies, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, that if you want access to the Chinese market, you better be prepared to transfer technology, and partly by setting up R&D centers. So Bob mentioned uh, GE. That's clearly a case of what, of what is going on there. Uh, they came to be near the market. Right? If you want to be near a growing market, you have to be uh, in the China market. But as the interview went along, certain parts of the story no longer fit this narrative, right? Uh, the Chinese engineers were really good at a problem that you gave them. Right? They could address that, they could really crack that. But they, once they finished that problem, they were done. They weren't thinking about what would come next. Right? What was the next set of challenges that you, would, that you would get them to face? It was very difficult to get the Chinese engineers to work together. Right? So we have a cliche in our mind about communitarian Asian cultures. But in fact, the Chinese education system, because it's focused so intensely on examinations to get into these top schools, very, has very little collaborative work or collaborative research. So it was very hard to get people to work together. And there was also the question of intellectual property rights, IPR, right? The, the, the US company was afraid that everything was going to eventually walk out the door. So they had a great deal of distrust in, uh, in the people that were working there. Then after about my you know, seventh or eighth cup of tea, I had to excuse myself. Uh, and I'm standing in the restroom. And there in the restroom is a big banner in Chinese that says, Relax. All of the toxins have been removed. <laughs> Needless to say, this banner had the opposite effect on me. So I go back to the managers and I say, so what's the story with the toxins? And they say, well, this is a brand new building. Uh, and most of the engineers that are working here have refurbished their new apartments, right? They bought new apartments, they, they refurbished them. And they know that Chinese contractors tend to use substandard, if not deadly, materials when they build buildings. Right? So there is a real fear that there are, the building materials are giving off chemical poisonings. We had an inspector come in, from the, but it was from the Beijing city government. And of course, the workers all know that you can bribe the inspectors. Right? The, the inspection regime is nowhere to be trusted. So the solution that we finally came up with, because the workers had threatened a walkout, was green plants, desk plants. Right, so once they pointed this out to me, I noticed that everyone on their desk had about four or five desk plants. Right? The idea being that the green leaves of the desk plant would pull the toxins out of the air, right, to filter the toxins out of the air. Once they pointed this out to me, I noticed that every other R&D center that I visited in Beijing on that trip looked like a hothouse. Right? <laughs> plants everywhere. Right? And this was not some, as I said, a liberal uh, uh, decorating policy of the companies. It was a fear that the building was poisoning them. So what this meant for me was that, yes, the buildings are being put in place, the scientists and engineers are in place, but what I call the software of innovation, right? the social, political, and cultural institutions and understanding that help move ideas from the lab to the marketplace are not in place. Right? Those things are much harder to build. They take more time because they are, as I said, social and political changes. They require these social political changes. So for the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about this distinction between software and hardware. And I think once you look in Asia broadly, you begin to see a lot of desk plants. Right? If we conceptually think about the innovation process as new ideas, training new talent, 
starting companies, and then the government regulation of those three areas, there are some serious desk plans in each of those steps. I'll walk through that. And then at the end, I'll tell you about why I'm a little bit more optimistic about the United States. And, and the short answer is because our software is extremely strong and fairly resilient. Right? We have some great software strengths. We've been overly focused on the hardware, right? how much they're spending on the R&D, how many scientists and engineers they have. But hardware is a losing race for us. Software is where our strengths lie. But let me talk a little bit about where the software is. So the, the first thing you need to do, of course, um, in this process, and I, and I should say before I begin that I'm using innovation in a very narrow sense. I'm using innovation to mean the brand new big idea that came out of a lab, right? In, which in the innovation field is known as science-based or product innovation, new to the world, right? Microsoft Windows, which then creates an entire industry. Um, I'm not talking about what people call process or incremental innovation, which is extremely important in China and India, and we can talk about it in the Q&A if maybe I'm focusing on the wrong thing, but I'm focused on this very narrow range. If you look at science-based innovation in, in China and India, at the same time that the U.S. and people like Thomas Friedman were writing all of these articles about the rise, particularly of India, but also of China as science powers, the Indian press was running all of these papers with uh, articles with titles like The Death of Indian Science. Right? In the case in India in particular, there's just not enough money. Right? We think about, well, Asia's rising, but the Indian government has, spending on R&D has been flat. It's about 0.1% of GDP. Uh, and sometimes goes down to about 0.8%. For comparison's sake, the US spends about 2.6, 2.7. President Obama wants that to go up to three. Uh, so the Chinese have, excuse me, the Indians have not been spending a great deal of money. And then the money that the Indians do spend is stuck, right? It goes to government research labs. The vast majority of research, research and development in India goes through government research labs. Well, that government at the beginning of that title tells you what happens to a lot of that, right? Because the scientists who work in those labs are civil servants, right? They are bureaucrats, basically. And the easiest thing for them to do is research that has already happened to kind of push the envelope on already already plowed furrows, right? Not to think big thoughts. Uh, inside those labs, the pr uh, promotion is based on seniority. Right? Young scientists have very few incentives to question the people above them uh, or to come through with big new ideas. So this whole time that we're thinking about the rise of India, the Indians are saying we're falling behind, in particular compared to the Chinese, right? There was a short period uh, in the mid-2000s, or the aughts, however we're going to refer to them, when an Indian scientist called R.A. Michelkar uh, took over the, the, the in government labs and said, we're going to start uh, commercializing. We're going to start pr pr producing patents. And there was a big push, but mostly this was in chemical engineering, where the Indians are already very strong and where Michelle Carr's background was. And you saw about three or four labs in India push pretty hard on this and, and get a number, a large number of patents. But Michelle Carr left and the new guy came in and he said, well, let's go back to doing what we were doing before. The Chinese case, it's not money, right? The Chinese actually have probably too much money. The Chinese have gone from about 0.6% of, of GDP on R&D in 1996 to about 1.5% now uh, to the goal of about 2.5% in 2020. Absolute numbers, there's still, the U.S. still spends about two and a half times. So the U.S. spends about 378, 340 billion total. The Chinese spend about 140 billion on R&D. They just passed the Japanese. So more and more money is going in. And the Chinese have extremely ambitious plans. The, the, the last science plan, which was called the 2006 Mid to Long Term uh, Science Plan, 
has 17 mega engineering and science projects. Things like manned sp space exploration and, and lunar exploration, um, development of biology, nanotechnology, uh, supercomputers. So very large, ambitious plans that the Chinese are pushing there. But the problem with government money is it comes with government oversight. Right? And again, government research labs, labs have a very difficult time of developing a culture of creative uh, individual initiative and promotion. And, and here I'll just quote from uh, an, an American scientist whose name is Muming Pu. He's originally from China. And he was offered a lab in Shanghai, which he went back to. And he's a neurobiologist from Berkeley. And he set up, he now has two labs on, in, on both, in both countries. And he wrote a, uh, an article for Nature, the, the science journal, that basically said, China is going to have a very difficult time creating this tradition, this more creative tradition, for three reasons. Uh, the first is that government bureaucrats are still involved in dis distribution, distribution of research funds and promotion. Right? So this is all still happening on political front. The second is, is that we are so commercially focused that we're just thinking about getting things out the door. We're not thinking about the big blue sky idea. And then finally is a cultural deference to authority. Right? Again, young scientists are extremely hesitant to question uh, old scientists, older scientists. Uh, just one point on the software kind of discussion. Muming Pu originally wrote this piece uh, in English. It was published in Nature in English. A local uh, Shanghai newspaper wanted to republish it in Chinese. Uh, it was censored. Right? They weren't allowed to publish this article, which was not very politically sensitive, but the local government didn't want to see it. So here's another software point about the free flow of ideas um, and the predictions there. So there's a big potted plant, right, in the new, new, gen, new generation of ideas. Government intervention uh, and how is the money distributed? How do you create this creative tradition? Let's talk a little bit about talent, right? So the, all of the stories are, oh my God, the Chinese have 600,000 engineers or and the Indians have 350,000 engineers and there's no way we're going to ever be able to compete with those numbers. Well, it turns out that those numbers are actually pretty soft, right? It's, it's not 600,000. It's not 350,000 because what you call an engineer or a scientist in those countries isn't the same thing that we call a scientist and engineer, right? For when I first went to China uh, in 1989, if you, if you work with a machine, basically, you call yourself an engineer, right? So my driver on his card said engineer. Um, so the numbers have gone through. They're actually much, much less, right? It doesn't really matter. Long-term trends are still they're going to produce more scientists and engineers. But for right now, uh, we should think about what those terms actually mean. The other thing is we don't think about what... There, those two economies are also going to face massive shortages, right? If you continue to grow at eight or nine percent as, as you do in the Chinese case, or six to seven or eight percent in the Indian case, you're also going to have this massive demand for scientists and engineers. And so the predictions are that uh, in India, for example, if you continue to grow at six to seven percent, you're going to have a shortfall of about two million scientists and engineers by 2020. The Chinese case is made even more complicated by demographics. Right, so many of you have heard that China is going to get old before it gets rich. Right, so China right now has a huge working population, but that is working its way up. And so by 2020, there are going to be many more 45 to 55-year-olds than there are 19 to 24-year-olds. Right, so that's what you want coming through the system. The other issue, of course, again, is quality. What are these people learning and what, are they, what skills are they developing? And so I mentioned earlier the problems about collaborative work and, and uh, again, are you willing to take the, the risk of figuring out what the next question is? The problem in China has been massive plagiarism, uh, academic malfeasance, and data malfeasance, right? Uh, been a number of extremely high-level cases of where 
deans of engineering schools have made up publications or made up their data. Uh, in a survey for China Daily, 180 PhD students, 100 P recent PhDs, 180 of them, 60 of them admitted paying someone else to do their work, 60 of them admitted that they paid to have their work published. Right? So there's a lot that's going on that's just totally corrupt. Partly this has to do with incentives, right? There, there is a cultural argument. There's a, there's a very famous book written that's called, you know, to steal a book is an honorable offense, right? About how Confucianism doesn't re represent, I protect intellectual property. I don't actually buy the cultural argument. It, I think it's primarily incentives. So what's happened is China's expanded its university population immensely, and there is more and more pressure on young uh, graduate students and professors to publish in a certain number of journals, right? You have to publish in the best journals. But they haven't increased the outlets. So China Newsweek estimates that, you know, there should be about 500,000 papers published a year, given these new demands. But in fact, there are only outlets for about 350,000. So you have a lot of people that need to get these papers out there some way or the other. On the Indian side, there is uh, the question about um, plagiarism and data malfeasance, but the larger issue is just numbers, right? We hear a lot about the IITs, the Indian Institutes of Technology. Something like a third of NASA scientists went to IIT uh, in, in, in India. But the IITs themselves uh, are just the smallest tip of the Indian university system, right? The vast majority, there's basically 11 million other university graduates who go to universities that are nowhere near in comparison of the IITs and don't compare at all to the what universities that we would consider in the fourth tier of the United States, right? So the Indian government itself did a survey of the quality of these schools. And 90% of the colleges and two-thirds of the universities are considered poor to middling. Right? So no, no education in, in English, no access to labs, no access to the things. So the IITs are the smallest, smallest tip of a much, much larger story. The other thing is the IITs don't really do scientific research. They're there for training people. So they're not producing a huge amount of ideas. And we know that in the United States, uh, the university system has become a massive source of R&D and, and new ideas. So here's the potted plant on the new, the new talent. <clears throat> on the new company side, I think there's actually a lot of reasons to be op optimistic about what's happening in China and India. And I think anyone who's been going to both of these countries over 20 years, it's very easy, easy to notice a distinct change. Right? And that change, the most important change, has been cultural, and that has been the embrace of failure. Right? One of the things we say about Silicon Valley and Route 128 and Austin and these places is you're, all, you're only as good as your last failure, right? So the young entrepreneurs in the States basically embrace their failures, right? Oh yeah, I had three companies that failed. But in China and India, this was culturally much harder to do, right? To, to, that was considered to be a failure was to, con, to be a failure, right? You didn't want to admit that. And it's still very hard in, Ch in China, excuse me, in, in Japan and Korea, right? Uh, in Korea, for example, um, I interviewed a young uh, engineer at Samsung, right? Uh, probably Korea's most famous company. And he said that a, a startup came to him and, and offered him you know, stocks and all the things that we begin to think to come start the company. And he said, well, I thought about it, but then I told my mother-in-law and she said she'd kill me if I left the safety of Samsung for a startup, right? So the, the overwhelming tradition uh, in these cultures is still you stay with the big companies, right? That's the safe thing to do. So in China and India, you've had this massive expansion of entrepreneurship, and you can see it across the board. The problem for science-based innovation right now is that those incentives are primarily short-term, right? There's so much money to be made now uh, in doing what's already been discovered, right? In China, we call that C2C, copy to China, 
right? So you have the Chinese version of Facebook, you have the Chinese version of YouTube, you have a Chinese clone of Twitter, right? So it's all basically localizing for the local market. And so that's what's happening, right? You develop for the local market and, you, and the returns can be fairly, fairly profitable. Same thing in India, right? Most of the companies say, I can do offshoring, I can do software IT thing, that's what I'm gonna do. It doesn't make any sense uh, to move there. So the real issue there for the small companies is it doesn't make any sense to risk it all on blue sky uh, innovation, right? There's just so much money to be made short term. So let me finally talk about the last thing, this government regulation. And here on the Chinese side in particular, you can see the, the bad outcomes of too heavy a hand and too soft a hand, right? How much intervention the Chinese government is. For all startups, right, even in the United States, but for all startups, the problem is access to capital, right? How do you get past what's called the valley of death? You make it through your first year, you want to scale up, how do you get by that? And traditionally, uh, people rely on what's called the, the, the three Fs, friends, family, and fools, right? People that will give you that money to make it through the first <laughs> thing. Uh, in China, for private companies, right, you've started your own company, it's very hard to get that money. Uh, you, it's very hard to go to a bank, right? You can, just can't go to a bank with a business plan because Chinese banks are lending to state-owned enterprises because they want to make sure that there's not too much unemployment and social instability. So most of the lending goes to uh, state-owned enterprises. If you're a private company, you have to show up with collateral. You can't just show up with a business plan. And so collateral tends to be real estate, but also another business. So often I'd go talk to these software companies and they'd, one half of the company would be software and the other company, half would be interior design. Right, because they have to have this other company that generates funds, but that distracts you right, from what you're doing. So how do you get that money? Well, the traditional way to get the money in China is from the government. Right? How do you get the government? You, you turn to the government and you say, well, you have these 17 mega engineering projects. Give us some of that money to help us um, push forward this edge. The problem is that, again, you have government bureaucrats who have decided what the edge is. So in Shanghai, I interviewed a company, as two young guys, um, has spin off on chip design. And they had some pretty outlandish ideas. They were going to do something really big. But the Shanghai local government said, yeah, that's great, but look, this is an Intel processor. We want you to be able to do something like this. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And basically, those guys were then paid to reverse engineer that, that Intel processor. So the, the edge where, where the Chinese bureaucrat thinks is here, when really it's probably out here. Intel's thinking out here. These guys were thinking down here. The other problem with too little government attention is the protection of intellectual property rights. So we often think in the Chinese case, well, you know, look how much Microsoft is losing a year, which is, which is true. But this is also extremely bad for Chinese companies, Chinese small startups. Uh, and here's an example of a company called Chinastar. It was a software operating system. wanted to compete with Windows. Uh, and it sold for about a third of the price of Windows. It was pretty stable, probably stable than, more stable than Windows, and pretty good security and bilingual, right? Chinese and English. The problem is, is that no one buys Microsoft in China, right? Everybody steals it. If you've ever been to China, you walk down the street, somebody comes up to you and says, you know, do you want Windows Microsoft or do you want Inception or whatever it is? And you can buy it for $1.25. So China Star was pricing it a, buck, you know, a third of what the real price was, not a third of $1.25. And so while Microsoft can run out those losses long term because they have the U.S. market and everything else, and they have this dream, I think it is a dream, that one day they will start being paid for all of this software in China, that hasn't happened yet, and they can run it out. So China, China starts folded, and, and it failed. So here's another problem there. Uh, before I get to the US, let me just tell you why I could be wrong. All right, this is the cover my butt section of the book. 
um, why the software argument could be wrong. Because Chinese policymakers, Indian policymakers, Japanese, Korean, they all know this, right? They look at what happened with the strengths of the USR and they're trying to recreate it. And the main reason I could be wrong is because there really aren't any national innovation systems any longer, right? For the purpose of the talk and the book and, and the newspapers, we always talk about, well, what is America doing and what is China doing? But these have become completely global, right? And so we are transferring a lot of these software skills. I don't know how quickly. That's where I, that's where the kind of big question comes. But I don't know how quickly. I don't think it's that quickly, but... And the, the transfer of these technologies, these software skills come primarily through two ways. One is the first way, as I mentioned, is the R&D centers, right? So the R&D centers bring all of these engineers together. They train them. Oh, you guys can't do collaborative work? This is how you do it. Oh, you guys don't have any connections to local universities? Here, let me help you figure out how to do that. Eventually, those people who work in foreign R&D centers leave, right? And where do they go next? Do they start their own companies? Do they go to a Chinese company? Right now, they seem to stay in... Um, U.S. or foreign companies. Once you get used to a U.S. HR system, which is very, fairly transparent, uh, you know, it's promotion based on merit, you stay in those companies. But, but that will change over time. The other, the other main thing that's happening, is, as Bob mentioned out, is that Chinese and Indians uh, who have spent 10, 15, 20 years here are going back. Right? They are going back and they're setting up labs and they're setting up companies. And again, I'll, I'll use an example from Muming Pu, the neurobiologist I mentioned earlier. This example comes from the internet, so I don't actually know if it's true or not, but it seems like it should be true. Um, and even if it isn't, it, it gets the point across. So when Mu Ming Pu went back to Shanghai, he wanted to establish you know, certain kind of um, modes of operation, right? How do you run a lab? And one of the things he set up was an annual review, right? A performance review, which was you know, nothing uh, earth-shaking. Earth but one of the Chinese scientists who was in his lab wrote him an email that said, um, I was elected to the Chinese Academy of Science, which is the highest you know, ranking you can get in China, 20 years ago, and that's when I was evaluated. And I don't do evaluations any longer, right? It happened, and you know, so I won't be attending the review. And Mu put wrote back and said, no, you know, everyone from Nobel Prize winners to Chinese academicians have to undergo this review. The guy wrote back and said, no, no, you don't understand. I've already been reviewed. I'm not, I'm not participating. I'm a Chinese academician, for God's sake. The guy wrote back, Mamouin Pooh wrote back and said, you have two choices. You can undergo a review, or I will promote you and take the lab away. So we see that these people are bringing these skills with them, and they are trying to change the institutions. I think they're going to have a very difficult time. That's why I think I'm right. But how long this metric is going to go, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's very hard to measure this, this, this transfer. Let me just talk a little bit about what I think this means for the U.S., and this means, as I mentioned before, that we should be focusing on our software. It's not that hardware doesn't matter, right? So the fact that in the president's budget, spending for the National Science Foundation is not only protected, but also going up, I think that's a good thing. We, ha we, have, that over. We, ha we have to do that, right? But uh, we're going to lose our hardware race. You know, as I mentioned before, all the numbers in China and India are, are smaller now, but given the size of those economies and the trajectories for growth, eventually they're going to pass us, right? So that means that we need to be focusing on our software. And in the book, I talk about three areas where we should, where we should focus. The first one um, is talent. Um, and what do our scientists and engineers know? And what skills do they have? And so, you know, Bob, Bob mentioned that our general sense is, is that Americans don't want to study science and math and engineering. That actually isn't all that true, right? If you survey freshmen, 
about a third of them at universities, about a third of them say, no, actually, I want to study science, math, and engineering. I'm interested in doing some science, math, and engineering. By the end of the first year, they drop out. Right? They drop out for a number of reasons. Partly they drop out because the teaching tends to be pretty bad. Um, you know, big, huge course uh, lectures. Or, or they drop out because they're so worried about getting into law school or an MBA program, and the grades are so much higher, you know, are harder to get in an engineering course than they are in a political scientist course. As a political scientist, I can say that. Um, they drop out because they don't want to hurt their A or their, you know, A minus or their B, right? So they, so they go and they take intro to comparative politics and they get an A minus. But the fact is, is that if you speak to most people, they say they are. They might be interested in environmental policy, or they might be interested in entrepreneurship, or they might be interested in innovation, but they're interested in science, math, and engineering. And it turns out we actually know how to make sure that people stay in science and math and engineering. It's not that difficult. There's a, there's a number of places that do it really well. And the way that they do it is uh, you focus on collaborative work. You focus on problem solving, right? So you, you tell the students that this work is to help us with you know, traffic jams or environmental degradation and all these things. You work uh, in big teams, right? Make people feel like they're part of something larger because the money is never going to be worth it, right? If you want to make a lot of money, you don't become a scientist, right? You become a lawyer or you get an MBA. You know, the numbers are basically, if you get a biology PhD, you leave about $3 million on the table over a JD or an MBA. So people are not going to do this for, for money. The other thing is we're overly focused on how many PhDs we're producing, right? As a PhD, I can say there are probably no people less entrepreneurial than PhDs, right? The problem is, is that there's, nothing, there's no real degree between a, a bachelor's and a PhD, right? If you get a master's in science, you're basically then qualified to you know, help out in the lab and clean the beakers, right? You're not going to be doing any advanced science. So that we have to figure out something in between those two degrees. And the Sloan Foundation, for example, is working on a professional science degree. So it's an extra two years of science, but also work on areas like uh, business plans and communication and design and sociology and anthropology, how, thinking about new markets. So I, don't, I, I think we need to ramp up the numbers, but the numbers aren't enough. Right? We have to think about what it is that keeps people in the sciences and what it is they actually know. And, and again, as I said, we know what's out there. We know what works. We just have to scale it. The second area is uh, new firm creation, startups. Right? And here I mentioned it's harder and harder. Uh, it's hard in the Chinese context to get startup. It's harder and harder in the U.S. context. Right? Small startups tend to fail as a, uh, because of the valley of death. In the, in the U.S., we've traditionally relied on venture capital to fill that space. But venture capital has shifted away from early and seed capital more and more to late capital. So there's a great deal of space there. Uh, the president is trying to address that partly through some government plans, through the Small Business, uh, so, uh, a small business Administration, but also Small Business Innovation Research Loans. Uh, probably the most likely helpful thing is going to be tax incentives, so no capital gains for startup companies, but also tax breaks for angels. So angels are people that invest about $250,000. These are all things that I think need to be promoted. And again, these companies have to be embedded in a larger network. Uh, so things that have happened in you know, Silicon Valley, and again in Austin, and Route 128, how do we make sure that they're connected to universities? How do we make sure that ideas don't get bottled up in technology transfer offices right, and get pushed out the door? So uh, in, the, in the book, I talk about two cases, one in Maine, so uh, a, a breakthrough in wood composites. Uh, and how do you make small boats and ballistic shields for tents in Afghanistan and Iraq? Uh, and the way that they did that was they got everyone in a room, which is easy to do in Maine because there are only 6 million people, but they got everyone in a room, uh, and they got you know, business leaders, community college presidents, the University of Maine, 
some, some VC and said, how do we build an industry out of this, a new industry? Uh, and they got a grant from the government, $15 million, not a lot of money. Um, so how do you build these things? So that's one of the other things I talk about. And then finally, I'll, I'll um, end on the, on the last point, which is if, if the future of innovation is as I think it is, which is increasingly globalized, right? These national systems don't matter as longer. We are, in fact, better positioned than anyone else, right? We have this huge immigrate, immigrant culture. We have all of this, you know, 40 years of tradition of managing across culture and time and space, right? No other country can really boast of all of that. And so what that means for us is that we need to think about our connections to these emerging centers, right? So we shouldn't think about China and India solely as these competitors, but we also need to think about them as sources of ideas, cooperative projects, collabor collaboration. Just to give one example, if you look at Chinese scientists and their collaborators, right, the collaborator of choice in every field but one is in the United States. Right? And the, the one that, that one field is material science, and then we're number two in that. Right? So we already have these massive uh, global spanning personal connections, university connections that tie um, us together. So what that means for the United States is both remaining open to ideas and being more aggressive about going out and getting them. The open to ideas is primarily about immigration. Um, and I was happy to see that the president mentioned in the State of the Union uh, about making it e easier for highly skilled uh, migrants to become U.S. citizens, but also startup visas, right? So you start up a company, you also uh, manage to speed along. But also foreign investment, right? We have to, we have to figure out how we're going to deal in particular with foreign investment from Chinese companies, right? Because they are increasingly going to be buying U.S. companies. Right now, we have the, the case of Huawei, which is a Chinese telecom company, which has has some ties to the People's Liberation Army, and it, it keeps running into barriers. But we need to get past that example, right? We need to find some other cases. The going outside is, in the 90s, there was this huge push on multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary research, right? If you wanted to be a scientist or an entrepreneur, you had to know not only physics, but biology and computer design, right? You had to know all those together. Well, uh, global work should be part of that, right? And, and there are, again, universities that do that, MIT, uh, WPI, Carnegie Mellon, but for most young scientists, they think that lab, that year in a lab abroad is a waste, right? You're really out of the thing. But we have to create incentives to make sure that they see that as an important part of their career. So I, I will conclude here. Let me just say that again, this is a relatively optimistic book from a fundamentally pessimistic person. Um, but I think once you begin to think about software as opposed to hardware, it's not that we don't have anything to do, right? This is not the story of let's just sit back and we're, we're fine, but let's figure out how we can strengthen that. Once we do that, then I think we will be able to compete in this new global world. I think the way it exists now, yes, it is true. Um, as I mentioned, the, um, the way that the education system is set up is that acceptance into these universities is solely based on the exams, right? And so students study six and a half, seven days a week to, to do well on those exams. You know, in the United States, you can, you know, if you're a B-plus student who managed to set up some community, community uh, project that, you know, fed th 
or 30,000 people in the, in the community, you could still get into great universities, right? Or even a C student probably can get into great students. So there's more flexibility that allows these in individual initiatives. That said, the Chinese know that, right? And Chinese educational reform is now increasingly focused on how do you introduce more of these metrics for more creativity. And on the other side, the US, of course, is going the opposite direction, right? We're focused more and more on testing and, and standards. But on the Chinese side, there's now been some uh, experience, primarily in rich cities like Beijing and Shanghai, uh, attempts to um, get uh, high school students more involved in, in more creative work. Thank you so much for your time. Getting to the IP situation intellectual property, when I was a professor, I had 10 major, at SMU and American Military University, I had 10 major cases of plagiarism. Nine were by Chinese students. Uh, it was devastating for them, but they knew exactly what they did. They took whole sections out of the internet. What I'm getting at is, do we see when, when these people get negative feedback for being dishonest, and granted we have, I mean we can't stand on the podium and say we don't have our own schmucks like you know, Madoff and so on, but are they, are they starting to realize you can't play by these rules and get respect and get recognition and, and, and also really thrive in an economic environment? Are they getting away with it? Well, I, I think there's, there's two separate questions there. One, I think, is learning. And I think if you, you, know, if you track any Chinese graduate student in the States, I think you'll see you know, a curve like this, right? So they come, and partly it's plagiarism, but partly they're used to just reciting what they were told they should recite, right? So the answer to the question is what the professor told me, exactly. So there is, I think, a sense to do that. Of course, you know, we have problems, as you mentioned, you know, young, uh, lots of college students now, their idea of research is clipping and pasting from Wikipedia and other places. But I think from my sense of what goes on with Chinese graduate students here, for the ones that are capable, they learn very quickly and there's a definite learning curve. How does it, and then on the Chinese, domestic side, it clearly is beginning to matter to them, right? So the Chinese, uh, the National Science Foundation, which is their equivalent of the, of the NSF, is now saying, well, we're going to publicize uh, plagiarism. We're going to put it on the website, right? We're going we're to shame these people so that they know. Uh, we're also going to allow failure again. So if you fail, um, we're gonna, that's fine. We're going to put it on the website. You fail, but we're going to give you a new grant af after that. Um, the question, if it matters, right, is back to the original point that I made about what type of innovation we're looking at uh, in China right now. And I don't think it matters a lot short term, right? Because what the Chinese are doing and what Japan and Korea did before them is you're catching up, right? Catching up is easier in some ways than trying to think of the next new thing because you know what the, what the goal is, right? And so to, to catch up, yeah, you know, if you got cheating, you got reverse engineering, that helps you do it quicker uh, in many ways. It matters for them when they want to make this leap, which they do want to do right now. Um, but short-term economically, I don't think it matters at all. Stay with IPR for a second here, and I'll use kind of, kind of as a proxy, but it certainly applies much broader. The things like the indigenous uh, innovation policies and their long-term plans, do patents, Yeah. Uh, so for those of you who don't, haven't heard the phrase, indigenous innovation is a, uh, a set of Chinese policies that are an attempt to transfer technology from foreign companies to Chinese companies. And the, um, it goes from everything from the failure to protect intellectual property, but also 
uh, the use of government procurement. So if you want to sell to the Chinese government, you have to prove to them that the technology was developed in China. Standards, you know, right? So the phones that we use have one standard. The Chinese wanted to have a competing one. Um, I, I think we're already moving in that direction where it's another trade issue, right? And so we can see patents is a clear example, right? Because the Chinese now... In 2011, sometime this year, they'll become the largest filer of patents, right? They'll pass the U.S. Yeah, they already are. Um, but most of those patents are, are garbage, right? The Chinese have three types of patent, design, utility, and invention. Invention is the one that's truly a, a breakthrough. Design and utility are mostly changes in um, external appearance. Uh, and most of the patents that China um, files are, are in those two areas. And most of those have to do with government incentives, right? So if you're a company, you get a tax break for filing a, a patent. Um, if you're a, a young scientist, right, in China, everyone has what's called a hukou, a, a residence permit. Um, and it ties you to where you were born. So if you're a Chinese who was born somewhere in the countryside and you're working, you want to work in Beijing, um, if you file a patent, they will change your residence permit from the countryside to, the, to Beijing. So there's these massive incentives to file. Most of it is as I said, very low quality. But I don't think they're doing it for invention, right? They're doing it for trade purposes, right? They're basically beginning to set up walls so they can start to sue foreign companies uh, in Chinese courts for, the, for that IPR, right? They're basically going to raise the cost that way. Uh, I think one of the interesting things that's happened over the last year, right, or two years, is that it used to be that the primary concern in the U.S.-China relations, economic relations, was renminbi, right? The renminbi was undervalued, and we kept on hammering on that. The, the, the Obama administration still brings it up, but if you look at what we talked about primarily at the, at the last summit, right, the Hu Jintao summit, it was all about market access and, uh, and indigenous innovation. So I think that's going to be the big push the next two years. If you look at the list of the companies that the new, graduates, uh, new students graduated from um, the top universities in China, uh, the companies are mostly uh, former state-owned enterprises, semi-state-owned so it seems that the Chinese students think that those companies are safe. Uh, do you think that trend uh, has any negative impact on the innovation and development? Yeah, I, I, th I mean, it, it does. Like, of course, with China, right, the scale is so big that even if, you know, only 10% of college graduates or 15% of college graduates go to startups, it's still a fairly large number. But the larger trend is an important one. And I think, you know, for, for most China watchers in the 90s, it was the story we thought was always about the private sector becoming bigger and bigger and bigger, right? That seemed to be the trend, uh, private enterprises. And that, that's what Zhu Rongji, the, the former premier, seemed to be working for. But in the, in the last decade, we really we began to see the reverse of that trend. And the fiscal crisis really, I think, I think reinforced that. Because the fiscal crisis happened, the Chinese government you know, spent a $586 billion on stimulus package. Almost all of that went to infrastructure or to state-owned enterprises. Um, and, of course, the Chinese bounced back much faster than, than we have, right? They, almost a year later, they had 9% growth. So in the Chinese policymakers' mind, state capitalism is the, is the model that's won. Um, and our capitalism, Anglo-Saxon capitalism, is still kind of hobbled and, and, and uh, bumbling along. So I think for them... That actually is a bad thing long-term on innovation. I don't think very much innovation is going to come out of the state sector. Uh, and to, this, to the extent that they think that that's the main driver of their economy, then I think that's going to hold them back. Yes, sir. Uh, I, I don't understand why we spend so much time on India and China 
when in fact you're sitting there with 350 million people in the European Union, are they so encumbered by union, unions and government regulations that they're no longer a threat? I mean, they got the money, the right. power, the transportation, the yeah. communicate, everything. They should be our biggest competitors. Yeah, and I think partly it's a sense that the, uh, the political problems uh, that the Europeans face with unions and public sector spending are uh, going to be very hard for the, for the current political systems to surmount. I think also, to be quite honest, and this exposes a kind of uh, fundamental assumption of the book in my thinking, right, which is that, um, I was discussing it at lunch, is that I have a model of innovation that's heavily uh, influenced by the history of Silicon Valley, right? Small startups, university-based professors, venture capital, uh, global reach, all these things. And the Europeans have not been very good at recreating that. Uh, you know, there's a thousand companies, Silicon uh, Glen, I think they call it, outside Cambridge, right? A thousand companies, but not really much growth. France has not been very good at, you know, th those countries have not been very good at um, spurring that kind of innovation. But as you said, you know, German companies are extremely productive, extremely innovative, and are going to continue to push U.S. companies. Yes, sir. Um, Christian Blackwell, um, there seems to be this, this tendency in this debate to kind of play a tennis game where on one side of, of, of the tennis court you've got people who, uh, the Thomas Friedmans, who are saying, uh, oh my goodness, uh, we are falling behind, the, uh, the Chinese students, uh, Asian students work much harder than our students do, and we can't possibly compete. And then on the other side, there's this kind of acceptance. Um, uh, that, that we are just sort of a, a, a cap, or a, uh, an analog to American exceptionalism, yeah. which is that we simply are better and our students are innately better than their Asian counterparts, and uh, because of that, they don't have to work so hard. Uh, and you've talked a little bit about how to navigate through that. Um, you've talked about allocation of capital and so on. And yet we're also compounded by the fact that this problem is compounded by the fact that venture capital has had a dismal decade. Um, you've talked a little bit about that. But I'd like you to, to speak a little bit more about how to fix the problem, how to get away from this debate of, of one side or the other and move forward and create something uh, that is, is not part of that debate. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and you put your finger on the central problem, right? As you, when you, especially when you're going around trying to sell a book like I am, which is that if you're not the gloom and doom and you're not the everything is okay, right, then you have to walk that, walk that middle. Um, I think, you know, the message that I'm trying to send is, is that you know, these economies in, in Asia have their own problems, right? They, they're going to face their own barriers, uh, which gives us time to figure out what we want to do. Right? And what we want to do, given all of the other things that we're facing, and you know, Bob mentioned budgets and local governments and all these other things, are real serious constraints. Right? We have to be pretty serious about how we uh, play the game. So I think the, the short answer is that there's no... There's no, there's no blueprint, right? And that there's, it's very unlikely that there's going to be a plan that comes from Washington that tells us all what we're going to do. It's much more that each region, state, city has to think about its competitive abilities uh, and how it competes in a global marketplace. Um, and that means, I think, a lot of the work has to be done with local leaders, right? I, I think that, that that's where the most important work is. The yes, you know, we, we have to have basic R&D, and that's where the government continues to play a role, and that's why the debate about is this investment or is this expenditures is, is so incredibly important. But at the local level, that's where I think most of the work goes on. And the, 
And for local leaders, the story has to be, yes, we have some strengths, but we're not doing enough. We, and we have to um, continue to strengthen them. Um, some of the soft skills that you're talking about are often um, attributed in the states to the mixture of you know, gender in, in organizations, where you know, the fostering of creativity or collaboration, et cetera, is often enhanced or rewarded in that gender mix. Can you, can you address, is, is there, differences in the gender mix or in the in that perspective in business in China? Huh. That's interesting. I would see I would have framed it not necessarily gender, which is part of it, but more diversity. Right? So one of the great strengths of the US system is diversity, which includes not only gender, but of course um, ethnicity, religion, all those other things. And that most of the work that seems to be done on problem solving is that diverse organizations do it better than uh, homogeneous societies. Um, so I would say that, and part of the book does talk about this issue, right? Because one of the things that is clearly happening in the US is that you know, white males as a part of the workforce are were shrinking, right? And women and minorities are becoming a much larger part of it, and they are underrepresented in science and engineering. Uh, and so how you increase those numbers uh, partly has to do, again, with these collaborative projects and group projects and things like that. So yes, I think that, that plays a huge role. In it. On the Chinese side, um, it's very much been a mixed bag, especially if you compare to Japan and Korea. Chinese women are much more likely to be leaders, are much less um, shunted off to the side. You know, you go to a meeting in China, you know, it it's not the women serving tea all the time like it is in Korea and, and Japan. And the Chinese women you know, could be the, the leader of the group. But of course there's been a, also a lot of fairly retrograde trends in China with, um, you know, if you apply for a job in China you have to send them your picture. Right? There's a reason why all the women in the front are 6'2 and you know, pretty attractive because they've all been chosen basically you know, based on this, on this front. So the, those two trends are, are going there. I think the problem for the Chinese is the more diversity side, right? 99% of China is, is Han Chinese. There, there are cultural differences between North and South and everything else. But as China thinks about becoming global companies, right, how do you manage somebody from you know, Texas, much less New York? Uh, these are difficult challenges for them as they move ahead. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.